Hey guys, Montel here, and welcome to this edition of Let's Be Blunt with Montel. My guest today is a board-certified doctor in internal medicine, cardiology, and clinical lipidology. He has held academic and teaching appointments at three medical schools and authored four books on nutrition and heart disease prevention. He served as the former National Director of Education and Community Programs for the American Heart Association and is a member of the Board of Directors of the Society of Cannabis Clinicians. His new book, the Cannabis, Cannabis Cancer Connection provides patients, doctors, healthcare professionals, and researchers with everything they need to know about Cannabis Cancer Connection, including best practices, protocols, through a comprehensive review of the scientific research and lessons learned from his patients' anecdotal stories. The book bridges the gap between traditional cancer care and what patients are learning for themselves. Dr. Joe Goldstrich, thank you so much for being here and being a part of Let's Be Blunt with Montel. My pleasure. Absolutely, sir. Let's get started a little bit with your background. Um, you originally pursued a career in math as a mathematician in the United States Navy. That's right. But tell yeah. me where you're from. What was your and a little bit about this background in mathematics for the Navy? Well, I um, I worked uh, uh, for the Navy for about six months uh, on a project uh, trying to figure out how many missiles to fire at radar targets in order to knock them out. And uh, I got to a point, where, this was in, in 1959, and I got to a point where- before computers, before computers, where somebody actually had to sit down and calculate this stuff, right? Right, well, they had some, some analog computers available at the time, and, and the project got to the point where they offered me an opportunity to learn uh, computer programming so I could finish this project myself. And I decided that that really wasn't the direction I wanted to go in my life. So I, uh, I resigned that, that job and uh, applied to medical school and um, fortunately got accepted right away and uh, entered my career as a physician. Um, uh, and I will say an illustrious career as a physician because you were on the medical team when our former president, John F. Kennedy, was shot. Tell us a little bit about that experience. That's crazy. Uh, yeah, that was crazy. I was a fourth-year medical student on the neurosurgery surface, and because they knew there was a head wound, they paged the chief of neurosurgery uh, at Parkland Hospital, and I knew that he was not in the hospital. And uh, so I responded to the page, and I went to the emergency room, and uh, entered the emergency room about the same time as the president. And so I was with him from the very beginning until after he was pronounced uh, dead. Um, yeah, I, you know, and I, I know this interview is about your cannabis cancer connection, but I cannot let this go without asking you some questions. I mean, you were young, just graduated from medical school, and you walk into a room and there is the president of the United States clinging to the last breath of his life, right? Well, I actually came into the trauma room one with the president and, and, and um, uh, started to undress him uh, as part of the, the standard protocol. Uh, uh, and, um, 
And I was a fourth year medical student. I wasn't even a doctor wow. yet. And, um, uh, but, but it was Parkland Hospital, which was a big trauma center. And we just behaved like, like it was any trauma case. He didn't get any kind of unique attention. It was just get to it and do what needs to be done to try to save this patient that had severe gunshot wounds. And at the and, time, the patient, when you entered at the same time, he was still, was he still breathing? Was he still, still alive? He was still, was, was, you had to intubate him? What were you doing? Well, he was intubated and he was uh, uh, defibrillated and external cardiac massage. But it's my opinion uh, that he was in all likelihood dead on arrival. Even though we did a lot of things to try to save him, I, to the best of my recollection and knowledge, he there was really no real uh, response indicating that he was alive. A few people have described some some what's called agonal breaths, which which occur when a person is dying. But but and and as I say, he was intubated. But but in my humble opinion, I think he was dead on arrival. And, you know, I mean, I, I will ask you this. I mean, because this is something that literally has reverberated even to the day. There's still information being released. There's still documentaries about to be done. People claiming that, you know, uh, uh, there were all kinds of conspiracy theories that were not actually investigated, that should have been investigated. As you look back on that, was that for you? a PTSD moment? Did that reverberate in your life for the now the last 55 years, 60 years? Well, it, it, that's an interesting question. Let me just say uh, uh, that the documentary, What the Doctors Saw, which is on Paramount Plus, which was just released last month, tells a story uh, uh, better than any other documentary that I've seen, and I've seen quite a few of them. That's the most recent one. Most recent. Yes. Okay. Right. On Paramount Plus, what the doctor saw. And I'm in that one. The, the seven, there were seven doctors uh, uh, who were present in the emergency room uh, and, and contributed to his care at that time. And they're all in that documentary. But that documentary uh, uh, shows um, uh, evidence that there was a conspiracy. And, 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 and I, I, the first thing that I saw after we got him undressed uh, and the IV started was a hole in, in his neck. And, and I, I didn't know what to make of that, whether that was an entrance wound or an exit wound, because I had not been trained in ballistics until I went into the Army about a year and a half later. And, and during my stint in the Army, I did learn about uh, ballistics, and it was only at that time, uh, in 1965, that I uh, uh, realized that that was most likely an entrance wound because it was very small and, and had very rounded edges. And, and, but, but, but to answer your question, it was a frontal entry, right? That that that's my opinion. Okay. Um, uh, but to answer your question, right after the the assassination, there was a, a talk in the hospital that we shouldn't say anything about that 
about what happened. There were some of the doctors that were interviewed by the Warren Commission and were told that you cannot repeat these things that you're saying. And then in that, that same year, there were a number of people that that were associated with, with the assassination who died uh, in strange and unexpected ways. And, and, and actually, I put the whole event out of my mind and did not speak about it for 30 years uh, after the assassination. Incredible when you say you put it out of your mind, but I'm sure that lying in bed sometimes at night, you had to have been channeled back to that experience. I mean, I, I couldn't imagine living through an experience like that with all the controversy about it constantly coming up and not thinking about it at all. And, you know, please, I don't want to turn this interview into an interview about that because we're going to talk about some other very important things you've been working on. And I'd love to have you back, though, if you want to do it, to actually spend some time talking through this because, you know, um, I just, I, I I often wondered, skip all of the the commentary, all of the news cycle things. I often wondered, what did those people who were in that room think when and during and after, because you saying that you were told to never speak about this again, were you forced to sign a non-disclosure statement? No. No, in fact, I wasn't interviewed by the Warren Commission. Uh, they, they didn't ask me to, uh, to come to Washington and, and tell my side of the, the story. You, you think that had you been interviewed, you would have been able to give some information that maybe have taken the investigation in a different direction? Well, um, because I wasn't knowledgeable about ballistics and whether that was an entrance wound or an exit wound at the time, I probably would not have made a major contribution uh, to the investigation. Hey, doctor, I mean, looking at this and looking back at, you know, 60 years ago when this took place, um, you know, I, I, I just wonder, do you even now, does this come back to you kind of like as a, not PTSD, but as a, a horrible memory or it's done, gone? You were able to I, can, I can still see the events of that day pretty clearly in my mind. Wow. Uh, I, can, I can put myself in that trauma room one and see the people around me and see the president lying there see Jackie Kennedy back in the corner of the room with the blood on her pink suit. I can see all of that uh, uh, pretty clearly in my mind's eye. And that must, I, does, I mean, I, should I say, does that disturb you? Is it just something that, do you still have questions yourself? No, it doesn't disturb me. Uh, it's just a memory. Uh, it, it does, it's not charged uh, in any particular way. It's just a memory. So after that incident took place, you went ahead, got your degree as a doctor and a physician, started working in what, internal medicine or first working in cardiology? What did you work in first? Well, I, I when I graduated medical school, I started uh, an internship. They did internships in those days in internal medicine. Okay. And uh, towards the end of that uh, internship, I got drafted into the army. It was 19, um, 1965. And so and, at the height of the Vietnam War, so. Right, right. 
That that's a good story in itself because I was uh, 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 initially assigned to go to Korea, and uh, about halfway through the, uh, the the basic training, I got a message that I'd been reassigned, and I thought, oh well, I'm going to D- Vietnam, and and uh, so I reported uh, to uh, personnel, and they said, Goldstrich, you speak Spanish, don't you? And I said, yes, I do. And they said, well, you're going to the Dominican Republic. That was that was a time we had an uprising and the uh, the organization of, of American states went into uh, the Dominican Republic to quite that that uprising. So there were there were armies from Honduras, from Brazil, from from um, uh, Mexico, the, the whole organization of American states. And I went into the, um, uh, I was assigned to, to uh, Dominican Republic as the chief of preventive medicine for the United States forces. And um, so that was my first job uh, outside of training. And when that was, well, that's where I learned about the ballistics. And that's an interesting story. And if you have me back, I'll tell that story at that time. But after I got out of the Army, I then went to the University of North Carolina and studied internal medicine for two years and then came back to uh, to Dallas uh, and uh, uh, did graduate training in both uh, metabolism and diabetes and cardiology. Uh, and then I joined the faculty of the UT Southwestern Medical School in the cardiology department based at the VA hospital. And then I went into private practice. And then I became the, uh, I, I volunteered for the Heart Association locally. And they were headquartered in New York at the time. And they decided they were going to move to Dallas. And the, the director of community programs, which was the preventive cardiology arm of the American Heart Association, decided he didn't want to move from New York to Dallas. So I applied for the position and I was appointed uh, director of Education Community Programs for the American Art Association at their new national office in Dallas, Texas. So you had a pretty illustrious career uh, working for the Art Association. Well, how did you stumble upon cannabis? When did you become interested in that? Well, when I was in high school, uh, a bunch of buddies and I drove down to Mexico from Dallas and bought a brown bag of something that was said to be cannabis and we all smoked it, but nothing really happened. And um, I sort of put it on the back burner uh, for a few years. And then uh, in in the early 70s, uh, I tried it again and I liked it a lot. And um, uh, but I didn't smoke or use cannabis throughout my my training through medical school and training as, as a, uh, a resident. Uh, and um, and um, I, I used cannabis for a few years at that time. Uh, and, and then I put it aside. Uh, I, I didn't, it, it was illegal, it was hard to come by. And um, uh, I, I, didn't, I didn't pursue it for quite a while. But after I retired, in uh, around uh, 2010, I got depressed because I didn't have enough to do. And I remembered how happy I was and how, how cannabis made me feel. 
and and I got hold of some cannabis and I smoked it, and it really helped with my depression. It 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 kicked it, and uh, so shortly after that, I saw a, a job uh, opportunity in California, and I had maintained a California medical license for many years, but hadn't been there in a while. Um, and, and I applied for that job and, um, uh, to issue, uh, cannabis recommendations. And I went out to Pomona and worked in a clinic for six days. And, uh, I quit after six days because it wasn't a legit operation. They were not really providing medical cannabis recommendations. They were just given cannabis recommendations to whoever came in, and that was not in keeping with the, the medical board. So I quit that job, and it was uh, uh, about a year later in 2013 uh, that I uh, that I saw another opportunity in Oakland, uh, a, a doctor by the name of Jean Talligrand, who had a, a, a series, had a bunch of clinics in California giving recommendations. And I talked to him and he told me he had a legitimate operation and I came out and I met him and, and visited with him and I was convinced it was a legitimate operation. And so I worked in this clinic in Oakland, California in, in 2014. Uh, and I saw about 3,500 patients that year who wanted the recommendation. And I learned everything that, that I know uh, about how to use cannabis for just about everything from those patients. They were all people who were using it successfully and wanted to, to get the recommendation. But I did not learn about uh, the use of cannabis uh, for the treatment of cancer until a year later when I went to a conference in uh, Denver where Mara Gordon gave a presentation showing um, uh, uh, brain scans of two patients who had, uh, had cancer that had metastasized to their brain and they were treated with cannabis and the tumor shrunk. And when I saw those, those brain scans, I knew that's what I wanted to do. And uh, so I, the first thing I did was ask Mara if she would teach me. And initially she said, no. Uh, and so I was persistent and pestered for about three months. And finally she agreed to teach me what she knew. And, uh, and that's when I started learning about how to use cannabis to treat cancer. So you finally got connected to what we would call a legitimate recommend or referral service. I probably ended up getting a, a, a California card from one of the offices that you work because I remember the doctor's name that you said. Yes, I did. Yes, I did. <laughs> I, I think that's where my first card came from. Um, you started seeing legitimate patients walking in though, right? Patients who had various maladies that cannabis would do some good for and cancer being one of them, right? Right. Uh, yes, I got a general education in the Oakland Clinic, but it wasn't until the next year when I went to this conference in Denver that I saw the brain scans of patients with uh, cancer that had metastasized to their brain. And uh, I saw those tumors shrink under the influence of cannabis. And that's when I knew that what I wanted to do was, was treat cancer 
with cannabis. And, and that's when I started learning how to do that. And now, you know, do you, just as a question, you reviewed all the data, looking at anecdotes and other things. And I'm one of those people who kind of feels like I've been, I've been working a little bit in the medical field for about 12 years myself. I, I talk to doctors all the time who say, well, you know, we need to have real empirical data and we really have, need to have, you know, uh, uh, the gold standard, double blind studies. And I go, okay, yeah, I agree with you. We do need to have that. However, you know, when it's one, two, that's an anecdote. Are you there? Yes. Oh, it's one, two, that's an anecdote. When we have thousands or at least reported thousands, that's no longer anecdotal to me. That is not an N of one. That's now an N of a thousand. When you're looking at an N of a thousand, why doesn't someone finally just call this data and say, look, out of hundred out of you know hundred percent of the cases, we see fifty-seven percent being legitimate, eighty-seven percent being legitimate. I do not understand why there is so much pushback on something that we know has been utilized again anecdotally for thousands of years. Come on now. Right. Right. Well, the the scientific approach requires certain procedures to prove that something works. There's a difference between knowing that something works and proving that something works. And and I believe we need do need the the clinical trials uh, uh, because there's there's so much that I don't know. I I feel like I probably know as much as anybody in the world about the use of cannabis in the treatment of cancer. But there are dozens and dozens of things that I think to myself. I really wish I knew for sure what how this works. And, and, doc, and doc, I would agree with you, but it, it's like right now we've been using aspirin in this country for a hundred years and we still don't know all of the reasons why aspirin work. I mean, right. it wasn't until about 10 years ago and aspirin is not a scheduled drug yet. You know, you put it on your counter and a baby gets a hold of it, takes 20 of them. They're dead on your kitchen floor. Yet yeah. We go ahead and do that, but we actually poo poo cannabis i do not get it i'm still trying to figure this out this you know i've been been just like yourself i've been dealing and working in cannabis now for over 22 years long before it was vogue long before people jumped on the bandwagon long before people even thought that it could be used for medical reasons back in 2001 i literally came out and said you know there's efficaciousness medically to cannabis i did it on national news outlets i did it all over the country and at the same time that I did it, our own federal government back then gave themselves a patent on minor cannabinoids back in 2002, patent number 6630507, the first patent ever given out for that for the for cannabis. And now we are 20 years later and still arguing whether or not it's efficacious, knowing that our Congress and Senate every year have voted a budget that includes funding at the University of Mississippi to study cannabis and still to today are delivering cannabis to now, I think it's five patients that are left that they've been delivering it to for over 20 years. And we still have this question about whether or not it's efficacious enough or whether or not we should agree to use it. Well, it is, it is a schedule one hoax that right. was perpetrated on us by Richard Nixon and Harry Anslinger and, and yes. others, and and we're still suffering 
from from that disgraceful move that they made to try to discredit the users of cannabis. The the at the time it was he wanted to to discredit the critics of the Vietnam War, the hippies. He wanted to discredit uh, people of color, both brown and black. And, and, wanted to make, and wanted to make sure he could fuel the industrial commercial prison complex across right, America. Right. Also continue to enslave black people. That's all true. However, we know that the same people who did that funded research in Israel. That's where Dr. Mishulam got his money from, from us to do the research that he did in Israel back in the early 80s, mid 80s, identifying the endocannabinoid system, identifying all the reasons why cannabis works. And yet still to today, we have medical schools around the country who are reluctant to teach about the endocannabinoid system. That, you know, the, the Society of Cannabis Clinicians uh, that I belong to and sit on the board of uh, is working hard to try to uh, provide educational materials that can be used in medical schools. And there are several schools now that have picked up uh, uh, these educational materials and okay. are teaching. The, you know, the endocannabinoid system is so pervasive in the body, it is a master regulator of everything that goes on in the body. And it's a shame that it's not taught in every single medical school. I agree with you 100%. Yeah, it's being taught right now. I think Harvard, uh, uh, University of Washington, Washington University, I think, um, Maryland, South, Maryland, University of Maryland, right? Josh Hopkins has a little class going on now about it. So, I mean, I just think, though, and that's part of what I think this industry has done the worst of for itself, and that is continued education of the masses. Because if we educate the masses and let them know that there is some viability and, and efficaciousness, in the study of cannabis, we would probably be able to get more grants to allow it to happen. And you see the Fed move a little bit quicker down that path. Um, but let's go back for a second and talk about that first connection that you started seeing between real information or it's uh, anecdotal information coming in from cancer patients. You saw the scans and saw tumors being shrunk. I've had patients on uh, my podcast, parents of patients on my podcast who have shown me and I've tried to get that out there to let people know that I'm not looking at it as being the wonder drug, but looking at it as being a possible additional tool in the arsenal that doctors have. I think that cannabis works very well and, and augments both radiation therapy and chemotherapy. So I, I don't, I recommend that, that people use it that way when when they want to all to to use everything possible to try to kill their cancer there's some people that just want to use cannabis and and I support them in their in when they want to do that but if somebody says can I use this with my chemo I try to figure out the best way to do that uh and I've seen many patients uh who have used cannabis alone without chemo and radiation and and shrunk their tumors, but I've seen probably more who have used it as a synergistic uh, treatment to to go with the chemotherapy, and, and it takes some uh, some uh, some some uh, knowledge to do that because because uh, the cannabis can uh, can accentuate the strength of the 
chemotherapy and make it even too toxic and, and people can get in trouble. I tell the story, an anecdotal story in my book about a woman with, with uh, gastric cancer who, when I first saw her, she was, she was really uh, doing very poorly by the use of cannabis with her chemotherapy because the cannabis was making, uh, was blocking the metabolism of the chemo in, in her liver. And she was having really toxic blood levels of the chemo. And we, we uh, started uh, giving a window uh, of, of uh, a day and a half to two days before and after the chemotherapy before using the cannabis. And it made a world of difference. And she went to no evidence of disease uh, using uh, cannabis uh, with her chemo. So, and I would bet that you have now started to discern the differences in between whether it be broad spectrum, spy, you know, I mean, there, there was, there was a period of time where, you know, everybody jumped aboard just the CBD train, but we do know that there are so many other minor cannabinoids that may have some that we've not even investigated yet that right. may have a greater effect. Like, you know, just CBD by itself. How about CBDA and THCA? which I know there's a study out of Israel that's shown that THCA and CBDA together actually has had some profound impact on what they think is the additional oomph behind the chemotherapy people have had. I've, I've read one of those studies that way. Well, there, there's, I, I, I recommend in my book, I have gone through the literature and found is the instances that I can uh, where where the acid cannabinoids have been effective. For example, in prostate cancer, there are some prostate cancers that do not respond to THC, but they respond to THCA. And so I, since I don't know how somebody's prostate cancer is going to respond, I recommend that they take both THC and THCA in treating prostate cancer and CBDA has been shown to have some benefit both in some of the breast cancers and prostate cancer uh, and THCA as well for breast cancer. So I, I've gone through the literature. I've done searches in the literature. I might put in a cannabinoid and look for all the instances of, of cancers that that cannabinoid has been beneficial for. But the, the most exciting research going on in the world today is coming out of Israel still. Uh, and it's uh, a researcher by the name of Betty Mary, M-E-I-R-I. -E and he has shown that, that there are some cannabinoids that don't even have a name. In his lab, he gives them a number uh, and, and they have antineoplastic activity and by themselves can, can kill cancer cells. Uh, and, and he has got one recent paper where he looked at a leukemia uh, uh, variety that had a, a, uh, a mutation, and it only took three cannabinoids, and none of them were THC. Uh, uh, it was, it was uh, CBD and uh, CBDV, uh, and, and this numbered one, 331-18B, that could kill the leukemia cells just as well as a full extract that had all 160 or so cannabinoids in it. And, and that didn't even include the acid cannabinoids. So 
there's so much that we don't know. And, and we won't know that until we get rescheduling. And I, by the way, I'm not a huge fan of rescheduling cannabis to schedule three. I think that's going to open up a whole new can of worms. It's not going to solve all the problems. It's going to make things a little bit better. It's going to make cannabis more available for research, but it's still not going to open up the doors that we need to open up. The only way to do that is to deschedule cannabis and get rid of this scheduling. It's an herb that's been used for thousands of years, and it shouldn't be scheduled, period. And I would agree with you 1 million percent. I'm glad that the research is being done in Israel um, right now. And But it's unfortunate that there's not more research being done here in the United States. That just completely baffles me. Do you think there's becoming a greater acceptance in the medical community for at least listening to or trying to understand and discern whether or not this is viable for some people? I think that, that doctors... Uh, uh, who are listening to their patients. There are a lot of doctors who don't listen to their patients as they should, but those who listen and know that their patients are using the cannabis, they want to know more. They want to learn more. And um, the Society of Cannabis Clinicians is a good way to, um, to get at some of that information. And are, are, are you getting the press that you need, that Society of Cannabis Clinicians? Are you getting, I mean, I haven't seen anything out um, uh, recently I mean, that, uh, on your organization, but it would seem to me like this should be a 60 Minutes piece. This should be, you know, a Fox News piece. This should be a primary piece that people should be afforded the opportunity to learn something about. Right. Uh, we have about uh, somewhere around 500 members uh, now. Most of them, are, we have physicians, we have nurses, we have, uh, we have PAs, uh, uh, we have pharmacists, we have quite a few pharmacists. Uh, um, and uh, uh, the membership is growing and, and, and we're producing educational materials. Uh, but, but there are doctors who, who, who are looking to, to, to help their patients who they know are using the cannabis and they're looking for information. And I'm really glad to see that. Okay. And do, you know, if you had to put on a crystal ball, would you, do you think that there'll be any movement at the federal level anytime soon? Well, I think that, they, that, that it's very likely they're going to reschedule to schedule three. Uh, and like I say, I, I think that that's only a first step. And, and and I wish they would skip that first step and go directly to, to descheduling. I think it's I think it's uh, legal now in 39 states. Uh, 30, 38 states under the District of Columbia. Yeah, 30, 38 plus one. Yeah, right. yeah. Um, and you know, I mean, I I literally am involved in uh, Massachusetts, getting ready to be involved in um, Georgia. I have a product line that has been out, and I I do combinations of THC with, you know, varied minor cannabinoids to elicit certain responses with, again, different terpene profiles. Um, but I noticed like in Georgia, you know, their law, they don't allow for smoking or vaping. They just allow for tinctures, pills, tablets. Um, they may go to a, a kind of a strip, like a Listerine strip kind of a thing um, in the next year or so. And they're probably going to expand the delivery systems just a little bit in the next year. 
but you know the DEA and they also Georgia wrote their law so that not only can you get cannabis from a dispensary, but you could could get it from a independent pharmacist in that state. And then the DEA just shot out letters to a whole group of a bunch of those independent pharmacists and threatened to take their licenses away if they even touch cannabis, which I find, what are they so afraid of, Doc? I don't know. I don't know. It's crazy. Crazy. It's, it's, it's not logical. It doesn't make sense. Um, it doesn't make sense because of, like, why don't you do this? Share some of the anecdotal stories you have from other cancer patients that have utilized it and it's been proven or for them to be efficacious. If you share some of those anecdotal stories, I think that may spark some things in some of our viewers and listeners' minds to say, come on, enough is enough. Well, let me say, I, I've treated um, patients who use cannabis and still died. It's not a, it's not a panacea. It's not a cure-all. But I've seen some really remarkable cases. Uh, one that comes to mind is a woman uh, who had been fighting breast cancer for many years. She had had uh, surgery and radiation and chemotherapy for, for, for many years. And, and finally, uh, she had metastasis to her lung. And uh, they, the, the, the oncologist sent her home to put her affairs in order because they said, we don't have anything else to offer you. Uh, and so she was my sister's best friend. And so I said, let me see what I can do. So I, I started her on, on cannabis. At the time, uh, she was emaciated. She was under 100 pounds. She had an indwelling chest tube to drain the fluid from her lung that the metastases were causing. And uh, she was depressed and, and she was prepared to die. But she said she didn't, she didn't know anything about cannabis, but she said, I, I don't have anything to lose. Sure, I'll try it. So within three months of starting just THC and CBD, um, she got the tube removed from her chest and she could start swimming again, which she'd like to do. And, and within uh, uh, a few months after that, her weight was back up to about 125 pounds. And she lived for another three years before she passed from complications of a liver condition, which she had had uh, even, even before the, the cancer. Uh, so it cha changed her whole life. It was, it was remarkable. Uh, changing, her changing her trajectory, giving her an additional three years of life. I mean, even if it only gave only one year of life. I mean, I, I don't understand. You know, it, it blows my mind that we live in a society where, you know, we will put people on chemotherapy. And I'm sorry if this, if this bothers you when I say it, but I watched the child go through two bouts of chemo with uh, lymphoma. And she was involved, you know, with the, the, the latest iteration of the treatment protocol that was designed by the doctor who actually created it. She went through it. And I literally watched my child, you know, majority of her skin fall off, um, hair fall out, you know, and we will do that to a person. But we won't say, OK, you ought to try this. And I remember their doctors were so adamantly against cannabis, but I really didn't give a crap. My daughter started using cannabinoids 
after her chemotherapy, she is, God bless her, right now I'm knocking on wood everywhere <laughs> I can, but you know, she went through two extremely bad bouts of it, but she came out on the other side and she's been thriving ever since. Cool. Yeah. Yeah. That, that happens a lot. That happens a lot. It, it seems to. I mean, and, and you know, I, I'm, I'm so interested in the work of the Society of Cannabis Clinicians. Tell me a little bit more about the organization. Well, it's, it's, uh, it was founded uh, by a doctor named Todd Micaria uh, in California uh, back in around 1996, I believe. He was a psychiatrist. Who, who did work at the National Institutes of, of Health and uh, as a psychiatrist. And he came to California and he knew that cannabis was so helpful for p- patients with not only psychiatric conditions, but all kinds of conditions. And he formed the organization. And um, it's, it's continued all these years. And... Um, uh, I was fortunate enough to learn about it when I was working in Oakland and uh, they were having their meetings their quarterly meetings in San Francisco. And as soon as I learned about the organization, I drove over for the next quarterly meeting and, and, uh, and, and, and joined. And, uh, and then about a year later, I got appointed to the board of directors and I've been on the board ever since. And we're highly uh, interested and active in in providing educational materials that that doctors can use to learn more about cancer, uh, to learn more about cannabis and all sorts of conditions, uh, how how to use it effectively. Uh, Excellent. You know, real quick, give out all your stats so people know where to go to find out for more information about you. What your social media things and all that. Give it out for us. What first off, book title. Uh, the the cannabis cancer connection. Okay, which which when you published it was controversial because you're not an oncologist, so you got some heat from that, did you not? I, I haven't gotten any real criticism. Uh, uh, all, all of my reviews on Amazon are five star, and um, uh, people are are are, and there've been. I have I have endorsement, not endorsements. I have. I have uh, uh, statements from two doctors on the back cover of the book. One is Dr. Dustin Sulak, who is a really leader in the uh, cannabis medicine field. And and another uh, uh, from a Florida physician, Barry Gordon, who has a clinic uh, uh, in, I don't know where in Florida it's located, but, but I have physicians that have endorsed the book. And um, and 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 a lot of a lot of other people have endorsed the book as well. So I'm getting I'm getting good reception from the book. I'm pleased with with my reception. And it can be found in bookstores and on Amazon and other places just, like that, just, right? Just on Amazon. Just, just on, on Amazon. Amazon right now. Yes. And do you have a website for yourself or for I do. You? It's yes, called website? it's called the Cannabis uh, Cancer Connection dot com. Okay. And, and do you have any thoughts about when it may be a little bit accepted more broadly in the cancer community, the oncology community? I, I don't. I, I, I don't for sure. I, I'm hoping that my book sells a million copies and, 
and uh, everybody knows what's in it. There, there's, there's a, I, I admit to many of the things that I don't know in, in, in the book. There are some cancers where THC may not be the best thing. For example, in, in uh, HPV-related squamous cell carcinoma of the head and neck, there's a research paper out of San Diego, the University of California in San Diego, uh, showing that THC uh, in, in low doses may stimulate the growth of, of that particular cancer. Wow. And, that, and that calls into question other cancers that are related to the human papillomavirus, like cancer of the cervix and anal cancer. So I talk about, uh, I have a chapter in the book called When to Think Twice About Using Cannabis uh, for Cancer, but you can still use CBD and CBG. We haven't even mentioned CBG. It's the new kid on the block that yeah. has amazing uh, uh, anti-neoplastic activity. And I incorporate it now in almost all the protocols that I use uh, for patients with cancer. Is there not an acid version of that also? A CBG? Yes. 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 I mean, yeah, but there, there's only the, the, the only cancer that I can think of off the top of my head that CBGA has been shown to be effective against is colon cancer. But CBGA has some other useful things as well. It turns out to be a good substitute for Adderall for some patients with ADHD. CBGA. I think they're also seeing that with CBC. Yeah. Uh, yeah. CBC has had, I think there's some writing out right now talking about CBC being kind of like that alternative to some of the other psychotropic medications that people use to, you know, um, uh, be uh, to be effective against some mood disorders. So, yeah, I, 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 there's so much research still needs to be done. I guess uh, that's what we're really saying, right? CBC has also been shown in several studies to have anti-cancer activity as well. Oh, CBD, wow. CBC and CBDV. Okay, uh, I've known about CBDV, but I did not know about CBC being. Yes. Uh, okay, yes. That's incredible. That yeah. really is incredible. So um, are there studies ongoing in the United States that for treating cancer? Or do you know? Because, I mean, there's probably a lot of people out there right now who say, well, I'll enroll in a study if you just help me. Um, are there any studies going on that you know of? I don't think there are any clinical trials uh, currently going on, but I, I could be mistaken. I haven't checked the clinicaltrials.gov site in a while, so, okay. so I don't know for sure. And are you hoping that your book just really, you know, rocks the, the attitudes of people and make them understand that there could be legitimacy here where you want to make people open up their minds? I mean, the, the reason for even writing the book was what? Well, my main reason for writing the book was because I, I had seen failures, as I said, where people were not successful in using the cannabis. And I wanted to ex explore the things that, that might be done different than just taking the higher, the, these massive doses of THC. Let me just talk for a second about why some people have to take massive doses uh, hundreds and hundreds of milligrams of THC, uh, uh, and others can get results with 20 or 30 or 40 milligrams of THC. And, and the reason for that uh, 
is that that there are other cannabinoids. If you just take a random cannabis plant and extract it with one solvent like alcohol and and use it, it may be very effective against your particular tumor, but it may not be. Uh, it may it may require hundreds of milligrams of of, of THC in that plant uh, because of the other uh, 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 the other cannabinoids and and uh, compounds. You know there are over 500 unique compounds that have been identified in the cannabis plant. So I've looked at this. Doctor Doctor Mary from Israel has done some dose response curves with different extracts of different cannabis plants. And one plant may kill the, the cancer at two micrograms per deciliter. And another plant extracted in the same way may require five or 10 times that amount in order to kill the cancer. So the reason you have to use these huge amounts uh, is because you may have a, a plant that doesn't have uh, the, the uh, the complementary compounds that are needed to do the job. So one of the things that one of my objectives in writing the book was to point out the, this this problem, and 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 uh, so I recommend that people make their oil out of multiple cultivars, multiple varieties, multiple strains of cannabis to try to get all of the components that may be effective in killing their cancer. I even recommend that they mix oils uh, extracted with more than one solvent. Uh, I have one, you know, most people use use ethanol, but it turns out that if you, I have seen that one study where they extracted a hemp plant with, with a polar extract, a polar solvent and a non-polar solvent. The polar solvents are methanol and and ethanol, and the nonpolar solvents are hexane and butane. And and when they used the polar solvent, it didn't didn't the extract did not kill the cancer cells. But when they used the nonpolar solvent, the extract did kill the cancer cells. So uh, uh, there are many things that can be done beside the standard thing that most people use when they attempt to kill their cancer. And I wanted to point these things out to patients. So now that we're at this point, do you think that this will start to be accepted as another, let's say, arrow in your quiver? God, I don't know. Uh, I wish I knew, Uh, but there's so much prejudice uh, out there against cannabis. Uh, that it's going to take some time. It's going to take uh, it's going to take some time, and and those those uh, uh, placebo-controlled studies that I want to see happen, uh, they're not going to happen for a while. It's going to be years. Uh, but my book offers people an opportunity to at least be up to date on what we know now and what we don't know now. I think it's just as important to know what you don't know as it is what you do know. Well, you know, I find it just absolutely just unbelievable. The fact that I believe there's, somebody has told me that there's as many as 35 
thousand published documents on cannabis, about 3,500 of them come out every single year. There's more written on cannabis than there is, again, on aspirin or alcohol, yet we don't accept the information that comes out that way. I, I just I find that just mind boggling that um, politicians are willing to, to make these overall broad reaching assessments that cannabis is not good when there's more information written about that than there is almost any other drug in the marketplace. Yeah, it obviously comes from an uninformed position. Those those mm -hmm. politicians that are still prejudiced uh, and, and against can, cannabis just don't know the facts. I got it. Well, doctor, I can't thank you enough for being a part of the show today. Anything else you want to add? No, you. we covered it all. Thank you. For, absolutely. And, you know, at any point in time, if you happen to be talking to some of the other doctors that are part of your group, let them know that they have a home here. I would love to have conversations with them because I think the more and more we at least educate and inform the public, give them, make them stimulate their interest to ask the questions, this will move this ball down the, down the field faster than if we didn't. Appreciate that, Montel. Thank you. Yes, sir. One more time, give them the name of the book. The Cannabis Cancer Connection. Cannabis Cancer Connection, available on Amazon. You need to go out and get a copy of it, take a look at it, read it. I can't say thank you enough, Dr. Goldstrick, for being a part of the show. Uh, Stritch, for being a part of the show today. And you always have a home here if you ever want to share more information, okay? Thank you so much. I appreciate it. Without a doubt, sir. And for all of you out there, make sure you tune in to the next edition of Let's Be Blunt with Montel. Thanks for joining me on Let's Be Blunt with Montel. Please make sure you're subscribed and hit the bell to be notified when new episodes post each week. We'd love to hear your feedback also, so please send us your comments. Thanks for listening to today's show. To check out more great cannabis podcasts, go to podconnects.com. Here's a preview of one of our other shows. I'm Larry Mishkin, and I'd like to invite you to join Rob Hunt and me on our weekly podcast, The Deadhead Cannabis Show. Each week, we explore the latest cannabis and jam band news and reminisce with other deadheads and jam band lovers about the great musical acts that we've seen and heard. Check out a new episode every Monday.